Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, we continue working through the Book of Romans, and during this sermon, we learn about how Christians are free from the law and now under grace, but still called to obedience for the sake of righteousness and bringing glory to God. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6 as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, Under Grace. chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, we're going to read verses 12 to 14 uh, here in just a bit. Give you just a quick chance to turn there. So very much appreciate TJ picking out the songs uh, that he does week after week. We're so thankful for our worship team who we're missing getting to be together and things right now. But week after week, TJ picking just songs filled with truth, uh, deep theology. And this week, just so much pertaining to the text we're going to look at. Um, that last line that we sang there, you alone are endless joy. So I cling to Christ to be a really critical uh, phrase that we'll uh, look at today. So Romans 6, and uh, let's read verses 12 to 14 here again and study through uh, this section here. So if you'll read along with me. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we study. Our merciful God, we are thankful for the thousands upon thousands of ways that you show your grace to us, gifts in this this physical world of earthly provisions that you have given, but God, the far superior are all of the ways you have worked to draw souls to yourself, how you have sent your son. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for accomplishing redemption We thank you for uh, the hope that we have of eternal life for all who trust Christ. And Lord, it is in his name that we come to you. And Father, we come uh, just hungry for more of you, wanting your truth, wanting to glorify you, wanting to know you. So please, God, we pray, send us your spirit um, to give us help to give us help that, Lord, we can understand your truths and then in understanding them, feel the weight and the depth and the reality of these things. So, Lord, in your providence, you have worked that we're all separated in this weird way right now. We pray for greater grace because there's greater need. But God, I, I do pray that at the same time, you'll work so that we miss being with one another badly and that we long to come back together. But God, that also you would provide what we need, the greater encouragement, the greater joy as we are studying your word right now. Please, oh God, give us help. Help me to preach, uh, be faithful and helpful. And and God, please bless all of us who are uh, bowing before you, uh, Lord, that you'll speak. Please change our lives, transform us, oh God, grow us in Christ. And we ask all these things through his name. Amen. We are in chapter six of this book before the first command to go do something is spoken. I mean, really, just let that sink in and think of the oddity of that. We've studied through five entire chapters. We're in the middle of chapter six before the first word is ever spoken saying, now go do this, now go obey. Uh, Many think of Christianity as just about helping people be good, you know, helping people be moral, helping people be nice. And then if you're nice, you get to go to heaven. But actually, when you read the Bible for yourself, okay, 
If, if you have still not yet read through scripture yourself, you will just find surprises constantly, just absolutely constantly um, uh, as you're looking at it and, and constantly surprised by joy, constantly surprised by just uh, beautiful um, truths that scripture shows. You got to stop relying on just what other people tell you about uh, the word of God and look to it yourself. But one of the things you'll see is it's completely different than the popular religion of the day. In scripture, and we've been seeing this very heavily in this book of Romans we've been studying, God shows that your very first order of business is not to go make yourself good. Your very first order of business is to come to God while you're not good and come be made right with him. Your first order of business is to come to him for him to save your soul, for him to grant you eternal life. I know that when we use language like that, people snicker. I get it that people mock when we use that language of God saving your soul. All I know to tell you is you're going to stand before him on the day of judgment. This is what he spoke. The word of God is given to us. This is what he says. Your first order of business is to come to God and be made right with him. Your Sin and my sin, and we do have it, our heart is rebellious against him. Our sin has cut us off from fellowship with God. And that is your greatest problem. You are cut off from fellowship with God. Unholy people cannot have fellowship with the holy God. You may not think that that matters. Most people do not, but that's like a leaf on a tree being told that, He's going to be cut off from the tree and says, who cares? Well, you should care because detached from life, you have no life. If you are not in fellowship with the living God, you do realize you're cut off from everything that flows from him. Okay. Every good gift that comes from him, which just so happens to be every good thing in existence. There is no joy outside of being attached and connected to him. And so if you are not connected, if you are not in fellowship, if you are not right with the living God, you cannot enter his kingdom of heaven. You cannot have the eternal life that he has prepared. I, I, I know we all realize that it's the popular belief of the day that, you know, Basically, everybody's going to heaven or anybody who's nice is all going to get it. But just look again, looking at the words of scripture, that's just not what we see. You remember that part where Jesus said that the way is narrow that leads to eternal life and there are few who find it. The way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who find it. God looks down from heaven. Scripture shows Romans 3, you can look at this and says, here is what he sees, that according to the standards he set, not our standards, the standards he set. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who does good. All have turned aside and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So here's, here's the problem. You are not holy and neither am I. And this is the problem. Your great problem is not finances, viruses, or you need to make better decisions. Your great problem is that apart from Christ, you are separated from the living God. It's the problem of the relationship that you have with your creator, the one who determines your eternity. But God has made a way. God offers a way for us to come and be made right with him. There is a grace that is available. And the way that he's done that is through his son, Jesus, uh, in the work of the cross, dying to take the justice that we deserve for our sins has made a way possible to be pardoned. And that is your first order of business. God declares all who come to him through the door that he made, okay, so you're outside, there is fellowship with God, there is rightness with God, there is this grace that's available, but there's a door, and he says, there's the door, all who come and enter the door will be made right with God. But you do gotta understand, 
He has a door. You can't like come around to the side, try to climb a wall and then complain against God or anybody who says, here's the door. No, this is what God says. We must come to him in the way that he says, which is through Christ. We come and we trust in Christ. We're made right with God by a repentant. That's a turning from rebellion, trusting in Christ. That is the first order of business. And it is critical that we see this. I I know I'm making a lot of emphasis. If you've been with us through our study of Romans, all of this is review. Always rejoice in the fact that there uh, there are lost folks who are hearing the gospel through these things. But what we have been seeing in the book of Romans is, is this point being made very critically. Five chapters, five very deep chapters of studying, here's how God saves souls. And it's only then, it's after this, that the holiness discussion happens. And do you see that that's reversed from the way that popular religion of the world thinks of it? Okay, so the popular religion of the world is I get heaven because I'm a good guy. I think I'm a good person. I'll I'll go do good deeds and this will make me fit from heaven. Scripture shows you absolutely are not capable of being good enough because we have sin inside of us. So first comes being made right with God and then comes holiness. So there's a really big point here and it's part of the point specifically of the three verses we're studying here. It's critical we get the order. First this, then this, okay? There are entire sections of the Bible that are written to say, it's a really big deal that you understand the order. Because it's possible you hear this and just be like, well, what does it matter? You know, if all that matters is God wants me to be good, then, then what's it matter? There are entire sections of the Bible, like the first four chapters of Galatians, which will say, if an angel from heaven comes and tells you and mixes up the order, let that angel be damned. That's not my language. That's, that's the Bible. That's God. The order matters. First this, then this. We must come to God to be made right with him. And then comes holiness and obedience. God, God doing the work of transforming us. Now, don't misunderstand that though to think that because the first order of business is faith in Christ to be saved, and then comes obedience, don't misunderstand it to think that the holiness and obedience is light, or that it doesn't really matter. It's not that big of a deal. That's the conclusion some come to, okay, because we're saved by faith and not by works. Oh, well, then it must not matter. No, no, no. Heavy language is spoken in scripture. So as to say, This is actually what we've been saved for. This is who God's people are. We are those who are becoming more like our God. God says, be holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. With Christian is the one who is journeying in that direction. But first there was the miraculous work of God. Uh, How many times do we see Jesus say things like, if your right arm makes you sin, cut it off and throw it from you. Uh, Jesus said, you cannot be my disciple if you do not renounce your possessions. You cannot be my disciple um, if you do not deny yourself, take up your cross daily and come follow me. We see Jesus communicate. We are to be willing to bleed. We are to be willing to die in the path of obedience. So this holiness and obedience, the putting to sin to death, the the leaving of evil in our lives, the, the coming to greater obedience, this is heavy, weighty stuff, but we have to get the order right. And here's more of the genius. See, part of the genius in all of this is, is here. This holiness is where God wants to bring us. But we are incapable of getting there apart from this first work of God in changing things internally. God's grace must be present for true obedience to even be possible. This whole thing that we've been seeing about justification, that's the biblical technical word for that first coming to God to be made right with him, declared not guilty, justification and then sanctification, which is the process of growing in holiness, justification and sanctification are a package deal. You don't get one without the other. The only way to holiness is to first come and have a work done in our hearts. So, Chapter six of Romans comes only after, I know this is deep stuff, 
after one, two, three, four, five. Chapter six comes after five chapters of here is how God has saved our soul for you who are in Christ. If not, this is your greatest need still. Turn to him. But chapter six is explaining to us why the justified Christian, the one who is in Christ, why we cannot and must not live in ongoing willful sin. Five reasons are are given to us in this whole chapter. So if you read the whole chapter, 23 verses, and you look for uh, what's going on there, five reasons why we cannot live in willful sin. We have studied thus far two of them. We're ready today for the third one. So I'm going to tell you what it is, and then I'm going to explain just the couple of sub points as we go. So number three, reason number three is this. We who are in Christ cannot live in willful sin because we are not under law, but under grace. And so just the first sub point is just, I want to explain what that means. In this passage, uh, 12 to 14, and then even what comes afterwards, the Holy Spirit does not lead Paul at this point to go into greater depth in this. Because he says a statement here in verse 14, you're not under law, but under grace. He says it quickly, makes his point, and then moves on. But what happens is when we come to chapter 7, this sentence, this one sentence is picked back up again and it becomes one of the major truths that is explained more in depth. So, so you know, if you're going to stay with us, church family, when we come to chapter 7, we're going to do a lot more thinking about this. What does it mean to be under grace and not under law? So more is coming. But I want to go ahead and tell you what, what briefly ex- explanation of what this means and why, so this is critical, why it is a motivation for obedience, why it is something that is given to us as so as to say it's meant to inspire us. You're not under law, but under grace that's meant to do something in our hearts that says, yes, now let's go obey greater. So let's, let's talk it through. We've already seen in this book, like back in chapter three, that we're all born under an arrangement with God. It's a part of creation. We're born under an arrangement where God has expectations of us. God has a law. We understand that law in our hearts. We we know what it is, and God clarifies it in Scripture. And the basic arrangement from creation is this. What did God tell Adam in the garden? Okay? Okay. Here's the basic arrangement we're all born into. Obey me and you will live. Disobey and you will surely die. That's the arrangement we're all born under. Okay? It's basic justice. But the Bible will also use use different language to speak of that arrangement. Okay? So it will speak of a covenant that God made with Adam and all of the descendants of Adam. We sometimes refer to this as the the covenant of works or the covenant of life, okay? And sometimes the Bible will just call it the law. The law is the arrangement of, of obey God and live, disobey and die. And so if according to God's law, if any one of us had been able to go our entire life and fully obey, see, that's the kicker. It's not mostly obey. Just like laws of society. You can't just like mostly obey, but then, you know, only commit murder just that one time, you know, and tell the judge, well, I've done, I've done really well most of my life. That's not how it works, okay? You break the law, there's punishment. And that is the way it is with God's law. But if we could have gone our entire life and fully obeyed, kept all of God's law, then you would be truly a good person. And you wouldn't need forgiveness. You wouldn't need salvation because there would be nothing you needed forgiven of, Okay? But none of us us have done that. Adam fell. In his fall, sin nature has passed on to every single one of us. We inherit that rebellious, selfish spirit, and we've all acted. We have all willingly acted on it. We have all deliberately acted in defiance of God. Like every day, multiple times a day, we break the law of God. We act on these things. So here's what you need to understand. You will never be right with God based on that arrangement. Based on law, you have no chance because you've already messed it up. 
okay? But the glory of God's mercy is that in grace, as an act of grace, God has made another arrangement possible. There is another arrangement you can come into. You're not automatically into it. You're not born into it. You can't, you can't bring your baby into it. Every soul must come into this arrangement themselves through the door God has made. It's the arrangement of grace. But it is critical we get this. There are only two possibilities here. Law or grace. That's it. There's no option C where I do whatever the junk I want and just make it up as I go. That doesn't exist, okay? Even though that's what everybody wants to try, okay? There are two arrangements, law and grace. We're born into law. Grace is available to us by faith. And so we we just see this. Uh, We see this here. So now understanding some of those things uh, as we look at it here, um, flip over, if you will, then to um, uh, chapter seven for a moment. Uh, Chapter seven. And I want to read you just to kind of briefly see what's going on here um, in this section. So those two arrangements that I just described, law and grace, are critical for you to understand what happens in chapter 7. I want to read just, just three verses to you here to understand uh, what is being said by the fact we're not under law but under grace. So start in verse 4, Romans 7, verse 4. So it says, Therefore, my brethren, you also, so speaking to you Christians, okay, if you've not turned to Christ, this is not yet you, but you Christians, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. So you remember in chapter six, we've already learned, okay, uh, that when you turn to Christ, you are counted as though you died with Christ to sin. Well, here's another thing you died to. You died to the arrangement of the law so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order, watch this, in order that we might bear fruit to God. Okay, so read obedience, holiness, bearing fruit of serving him. Verse five, for while we were in the flesh, so that's us before we turn to Christ. That's us apart from Christ. That's us under the law. While we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law having died to that by which we were bound so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. So here's what we see. For you, Christian, looking back to that time before you came to Christ, when you were under the law, when you were separated from Christ, when you were in the flesh, all of those phrases mean the same thing and the Bible will use all those phrases. Under the law, When the new birth had not taken place yet, you were only operating in your strength. Left to yourself, here's where we truly are. Where we truly are is this. We have a rebellious heart, and actually the law of God makes us want to disobey it. Actually, hearing about a law makes us want to rebel against that law. I mean, I know people talk all the time about how good my heart is. Let's be honest, okay? Let's be honest. Um, I've heard some say in the midst of all this quarantine, I love staying at home, but when the government told me that I was supposed to stay home, that made me want to go out, okay? What is that? That is the rebellious nature inside of us, okay? All of us apart from Christ under the law, we are verse five. Verse five is rebellion lives inside of us, okay? And when a rebellious heart meets an authority figure who points the finger and tells us something to do, everything inside of us wants to break it just because we were told what to do. That's us under the law. I mean, I mean, just think about it. Rebe- rebellion is considered cool by the world, okay? It's glorified in movies, okay? Uh, musicians, rock stars embody this. If you're just gonna sum up what is the whole bad boy image, what is it all? Rebel. Okay, that is at the heart. It's just, it's just thought of as so cool. Apart from Christ, though, this is where we are. And by the way, Christian, you know, 
when the conversion takes place, when the new birth takes place, it's not like all that just up and disappears, okay? And more will be uh, talked about that in chapter seven, that we still struggle with that rebellion, but a new desire has been brought inside of us. But this is where we are apart from Christ. But then a drastic change takes place when we leave law and come into grace. Look at verse six again of chapter seven, okay? Look what it says, but now. Now, now by the way, all the time when the Bible is using that language, it's all the time talking about conversion. All the time talking about the passing from death to life. So here is where we were under law in the flesh, but now, now in this new, now what has happened? Read it again. Released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. So that's, that's the law. So that we serve in newness of the spirit, the spirit of God, and not in oldness of the letter. What is the drastic change that takes place? When we were under the law, whatever obedience we did give was given with a wrong kind of heart. It was given out of uh, either a prideful, pharisaical, I want to try to look good in front of people, or just out of guilt, or just out of sheer drudgering obligation, just out of sheer, I have to do this kind of thing. But now something has happened. Before we turned to Christ, we thought of God's law as oppressive. We thought of God's law as a nuisance. We thought of God's law as robbing us from gladness. And so I just ask you this morning, whenever you think of God's instructions in the word, is that how you think of it? Do you think of God's word as oppressive? Do you think of his commandments as something that is robbing you of gladness? Okay, because the reality is it's not. God's law is good. He is good. He has the right to demand obedience. He's the living sovereign ruler. But that's not how we think whenever we're in, uh, in the flesh and under the law. But everything happens at, everything changes at conversion the new birth, the awakening. We begin to think in new ways. And so all kinds of language is spoken of um, in scripture. Uh, in Ezekiel in the Old Testament, when God spoke to him and pointed forward to the coming new covenant, God said that when that day comes, I will give them new hearts. I'll remove the heart of stone and I'll put within them a, a heart of flesh that's soft and responsive to God. God said, I will write my law on their hearts, meaning everything changes going from sheer rebellion to now a new desire is introduced that there's a new kind of desire to honor God. We look at the world differently. We look at God's law differently. We once looked at God's rules as oppressive, but now under grace, we look at God's law. Well, if you want to know the next place to read in your Bible reading, Psalm 119, longest chapter in the whole Bible, the whole thing is about, oh, how I love the law of God. The heart that is changed by God looks at the commandments differently. Now, one just little clarifying point here. When we talk about the difference between being under law and under grace, in Christ we're under grace, but don't think there are no laws, like there are no rules. No, there are rules. There are commandments. It's the law of Christ. What has changed is the fact that we're no longer obligated to try to keep the law in order to be right with God. Under grace, we get the grace of forgiveness and salvation, and then we are to obey God with a new heart for new reasons. We obey in newness of the spirit. There is something that has set us free in that. So, so now come back to chapter six and think about this. Being under grace is drastically different than being under law. So the Christian must not live in ongoing willful patterns of sin. Why? Right? Well, we started off in Romans 6 by seeing because we have died with Christ to sin. 
And then the second point was, because I am alive in union with him and he is helping enable me to live uh, in in a obedient kind of way. But here's the third one, because you have been brought out from law and put under grace. You have been saved out of a former way of life and you have been brought to a new way of life. There is a gracious place you now live. Grace abounds, grace overflows, and there is something very freeing about that. That's part of the whole point, freedom. Part of the whole point is the glory of what it is to know I am loved by God, not based on my performance. That's freeing. That is glorious. To, To truly understand where we came from, that I was condemned because I could not keep the law of God. And that is not wrong of God. That's not cruel. That is just. But now to be in a position that I am loved by God, we are accepted by God, grace flows to us. And even when we mess up, because we do, I am confident that there's never going to come a point that God says, that was it. That was the last grace, the last one. No more that's going to come. Every time grace is new, grace abounds, and that is freeing. It's freeing to us. I mean, I mean, partly to just one way of seeing this is how does the Christian not go insane? And what I mean is, you know, the world thinks of sin as just no big deal, you know. As we read the word of God, we we come to just be shocked by the passion with which God hates sin, the the, the disgusting ways that it is explained and God uh, shows that he despises it and hates it. It is repulsive to him. He hates sin with a passion you have never felt towards anything. And the more we study the Bible, the more we come to be disgusted by sin ourselves. And yet here we are, sinners. So how does the Christian not go insane? If God absolutely hates sin and yet we continue to fall to it, then how do we keep our sanity? How is it that we still can continue? It's the freedom of knowing that we are under grace. We are loved by God. We are accepted by God. His love is so fierce and so faithful. He's not going to kick you out of his family. He is not going to remove your salvation. He has determined to rejoice over you. So by golly, one way or the other, he is going to rejoice over you. He has determined to delight in you. So one way or the other, he is going to. He is going to finish his work. He is going to finish his work so fully that we will be presented on the last day holy and blameless. He's going to do his work. We live in a place of grace. So willful sin, Christian, that's just not who you are anymore. That's your old you. That's your former self. That's your old identity. You have a new identity now in Christ. That's just not who you are anymore. And so now... We look at this and we uh, think of the rest of the point here. Look back to chapter 14 there. Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And now consider the rest of what that passage says. So that's the, the big reason all that was said before that is part of that application. So when it says there, do not let sin reign in your life, reign over your mortal body. Do not obey its lust. And then all of verse 13, as it talks about not presenting ourselves, all of this is the, is the reason, uh, is the application for the reasons that comes out of this. You're not under law, you're under grace. So now consider the rest of what it says here. I want to finish out our time by just looking at the rest of these instructions that we see here that flow out of this. We considered last Sunday, don't let sin reign. Now consider the part where it says, uh, do not obey its lust and do not present your bodies to sin. This is the second part here. In the book of James, it explains to us that all of our sinful actions come from a deeper root. They, They come from the lust that live within us. We are bent 
Sin, do not think of sin simply as actions, simply as moments that we break the law of God. Sin is, that is that, but sin is a power, a force, a poison, a sickness that lives inside of us. And we have all kinds of lust that live inside of us. A lust is a good desire that has gone rogue. We got to understand that desires in and of themselves are, are not evil. See, sometimes we can get to thinking about our sin and just think, you know, my problem is that I desire things. If I could just stop desiring things, then, then I would be okay. But that's actually inaccurate. That's not what the Bible teaches. God created desires in us for our good. God created desires to serve us. So in the same kind of way, you know, it's something that the Bible teaches that helps us explain the world, um, to, to kind of quote C.S. Lewis there, that evil is not in, in its own original thing. Evil is always a parasite, meaning every sinful action is always a distortion of something good that God made. The same goes with our desires. God created desires for good. The basic desire to eat, okay, is not an evil thing. That was designed by God, created by God, for our good, for our health, and for our joy. The basic desire for sex is not evil. God created it. Now we gotta be really careful at these places that we not take that and use it as excuse for sin. We gotta hear the rest of what this says. The fall has brought this scenario where the good creation of God has been marred, distorted, corrupted. What was straight has been made crooked, okay? So the Bible uses all kinds of language for that. What was good has now been made crooked. And the same goes for desires. And so the scripture says, do not obey sin's lust, these desires uh, that have gone rogue, these desires that either cross the line of wanting something too much or wanting something in a way that is distorted from God's design. We are not to obey those desires, and the same language of lordship and mastery is used there. We're not under law any longer where those passions, those lust, those desires, that's how we lived. It defined how we live. I did what I want. I indulged my desires. Now we're under grace. We have a new Lord and therefore we are to obey our new Lord Christ and not obey the desires of our former life. To, to see this a little, uh, a little more clearly, um, jump with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 for a moment. 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, find verse 14 there. Uh, and read a bit of a section, 1 Peter 1, 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust, which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Do you notice the part there that talks about, <clears throat> do not be conformed to your former lust, which you had in your ignorance. Notice that word ignorance there. Why, why is it spoken that way? You know, the text could just say lust or bad, don't do them. But it's explained why this emphasis on ignorance. It's because when we were under law, there is a way of thinking that dominated. But now under grace in Christ, there is a new way of thinking. And we need to get rid of the old ways of thinking, the ways of ignorance, when we were in the flesh, there's a world of truth we did not know. There were lies we were believing. And that's, that's really one of, the, one of the primary truths we've got to understand here. Lust lies to you. Evil desires, they're lying. They don't speak audibly. We know that. But, but how it works is, you know, you're laying in bed before you go to sleep and your, your mind begins to, to, to fantasize. And so maybe you begin to dream about that next possession that you just, you feel like you just got to have. We begin to covet. Coveting, that is a lusting, that is a desire. We begin to long for this thing and, you know, we don't spell it out and word it real clearly. We're just, we just got things going on in the heart. But we feel these things of, then I'll have this fulfillment. Then I'll be happy. 
Then I'll be satisfied. Oh, this will give me that ultimate it, you know, that we're all looking for. That's there. Our heart feels this possession will give us this new satisfaction and joy, but it lies. And the biggest the biggest lie of it, the biggest lie that we're tempted to believe, even as Christians with the new way of thinking, it doesn't all just change all at once. There's this work that has to go into transformation of thinking. The biggest lie that comes with our lust, it really is the ultimate lie. We all want not, not just the little thrill. What we're all aching for is that ultimate satisfaction. And really every lust is in some way kind of telling us, here's how you'll get it. Here's how you'll get it. Fantasize about this. Here's how you'll get the, the great fulfillment. This is what everyone is searching for. Every, every school of thought, every philosophy, every political uh, group, every one of them, they're all trying to find a way to get us to this it. This ultimate here, every speech given in school, it's all trying to move everybody. All of the world is advertising to say, come to me and I'll give you the it. That thrill, that ultimate thrill that you've been looking for. Let me show you how to have it. That ultimate house, that whatever possession that's just going to make you whole and make you full. Come here and I'll give it to you. The greatest lie that exists is anything that tells you you will get it anywhere but Christ. And I know that when we talk like that, I know that when we say some of these things that we're about to say, that in Christ, there is fullness of joy and endless joy. I know there's a whole group that just zones out at that point. Because maybe they think it's hokey and empty. A lot of times it's that folks have tried religion and they didn't get it. So they decided it was empty. In reality, what often happens is that Folks are inoculated with a little bit of dead religion and they never get the real thing, but they think they've tried it. And so when I say this, understand that I say this as soberly and as seriously as I possibly can. The it that you are looking for, it is in Christ. That satisfaction that your soul longs for, it is in Christ. It is in him. Look, that's what Jesus meant when he, remember that time he stood up at the feast and he called out to the crowds? If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And I will give you living water that flows up from within you and never ends. That's a poetic way of saying, I am what you're looking for. I'm the source of everlasting joy. When Jesus said, I am the bread of life, I am the living water, I am your rest, this is what he is saying. When Jesus said, I came to give you joy in the fullest measure possible and at the right hand of God, there are pleasures forevermore. This is what scripture is saying. Lust lies to us by saying the satisfaction you long for, it's in this sexual thrill or this amount of money or this job. But Christ says it's in me. You get him, you get everything. Jesus is the great treasure that's worth trading all for. Jesus is the pearl of great price that is worth denying, renouncing all possessions, all earthly accolades in order to get him. In Christ, you get him you get everything. Separated from him, you could own the world. Own. For a little period of time. And then you'll stand before God naked and poor and be cast into eternal wrath. The North Korean believer in the labor camp who is tortured daily, but who has the inheritance to come, has infinitely more riches than name your rich guy on the planet right now. You get Christ. You get everything. In, in Philippians, I know we kind of reference this all the time. I think it's because I've been in Philippians a lot here lately, but I just think it's illustrated so clearly. In Philippians, Paul is sitting on a prison floor. He's 
busted to pieces. He's bleeding on the floor. And the theme of the letter is to rejoice in Christ. And he writes it with a smile, giddy. The guy's giddy as he writes this letter. And he says, rejoice in Christ in every circumstance because what we have in him is so good. I don't care how much you bleed. It is worth it. He comes to chapter four and he's got this whole section Right after he tells us in all anxiety, let it go. We rejoice in Christ. It's good. He has a section right after that. He says, I don't speak from want. I am, I'm content. He says, I've, I've learned to be content in every circumstance. When I got plenty, I'm content. When I'm bleeding on a prison floor, I'm content. I'm okay. I've got joy. Why is he okay? Why is, why does he have that joy? Because he has Christ. Because he's under grace. And here's the point that I'm trying to make. How do you beat lust? How do we beat sin? See, all the simple cliches, and and listen, let's, let's be real, even cliches that sometimes we Christians use of just say no, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, discipline yourself. All of those cliches, if if we only did that, you, you will not do it. You will not beat lust. You cannot just give yourself law and beat sin and stop obeying its lust. How do we beat it? Look, we talk a lot about strategies. And, and let me also make clear as I say those things, we do need strategies. We do need discipline. We do need to sometimes just tell myself, say no the next time. But that, if that's your only strategy, you're going to fail. You won't win only by the negatives. How do we win? We win by a superior joy. We win by having a joy in Christ, by having a pleasure in him that is greater, we win by eventually coming to see that all of these lust-promising thrills, we become bored with them. We become bored with them. We win by the positive. You beat evil desires by a robust joy that leaves your soul seriously satisfied. And that's Paul's point in Philippians 4. Now, let me make clear here. In Christ, you have a glorious inheritance, but we don't always feel that. Okay? It's not automatic that we come to that joy. Growing in Christ and growing in our joy, we come to this. And so this is where being under grace brings us. Being under grace brings us to this freeing and glorious position, not of obeying God out of drudgery, but obeying God out of delight. Do you not want to please the one who is giving you this much grace? The more you learn about his grace, the more you will obey him. The more you learn about just how lavish his mercy is, the more you study heaven, the more you will obey him. Because the glory of grace has this inspiring, enlivening, invigorating effect in our hearts to make us want to obey him, to say with Psalm 119, oh, how I love your law. It is my delight. So don't you just find it amazing? Like, isn't it beautiful that one of God's greatest commands to us in your life is go get joy. Go get your soul really, really happy, but in Christ. Okay, so many people take that whole thing. God's big thing is he wants me to be happy, so I'll go to my sin. You're missing the whole boat. You fell off the dock into the water. The whole point is go to Christ. Get your soul really, really happy in Christ. Christianity is not about learning how to be miserable and waiting for the end. Christianity is go get your soul glad in Christ. And as we do this, we will beat sin more and more. We need the negatives. We do need conviction. We do need guilt. We do need our conscience at work. We do need to discipline ourselves and we need strategies. We need to put in the negative effects and guardrails in our lives. But don't you dare just approach all of this like that. That's legalism. That's that's self-righteous Pharisees. 
see the glory of what we are under. We are under God's grace. So what's the application, Christian? Well, he gives a lot of things. Don't let sin reign. Don't obey its lust. Don't present the members of your body to sin any longer. But here's another big application. Go glory in Christ. Go, Go meditate on the gospel every single day until your heart sings with joy and you'll find you're beating sin a lot of times even when without having to tell myself, discipline, discipline, discipline. Put the negative and the positive, but go pursue Christ. Go make your heart rejoice in the great treasure. Christian, you're not under law. You're under grace. Live. Live as sons and daughters of God who are under grace. And if you have not turned to Christ specifically to turn to him to be saved. Maybe you're even involved in religion. Maybe you're even involved in a church regularly, but you've never heard this message that your soul must be saved. I know it's one of the most frustrating things that possibly exist that many times churches, the very ones who are supposed to be communicating God's word, distort the message. I wish it weren't true, but that's not the world we live in. You're living in a cursed world. If you have not turned to Christ to be saved, you need to understand this. You are still under law. You are in the flesh and you are separated from Christ. But grace is available. Come enter grace. There's a door. God says, come to the door. The door is Christ. Come trust in Christ. Pray and ask God to save you. Confess your faith in him. Commit your life to him. And the Bible says that all who truly come to him and call on his name will be saved. Let's pray. God in heaven, I I ask God that you will come to us. I pray for all those at home listening and I pray for the grace, Lord. Please encourage your people, those who are yours. Father, I pray make our souls to be enthralled with joy, to be supremely happy in Christ. And I pray, God, that we'll grow in holiness because of it. And any God who's listening in and has not yet come to you in truth, please bring them, O God. Bring them to trust Christ. We love you, O God. Please give us your blessing. We ask all of this through Christ. Amen. The Lord bless you. We'll see you later. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's message titled Under Grace. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter or Instagram at TrueVineIND or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.